Today's guest is Carl Myers. This is another one that we recorded previously. Uh, at the time, Carl was with Stradley Ronin. We talk a lot about that in the interview. Since then, he's moved on. He now co-chairs the appellate division at Stevens and Lee. Regardless of where he works, uh, he's got a lot of experience and knowledge about appellate practice. So obviously we talk about how he got into that. Uh, is it too boring for him, etc. Uh, Carl, welcome to Interrogatories. Josh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm not going to say you're the fanciest lawyer we've had, but you're the first, I would say, solely appellate lawyer. We've had post-conviction lawyers. Um, we've had trial lawyers. And you know what they say is, uh, you know, the appellate lawyers, those are the ones who uh, can turn one word into 50. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on. We do have a time limit here. So <laughs> it'll, it'll be right at home for you, just like oral argument. There's a little bit of a time limit. Um, but that's okay. But thank you for being here. Absolutely. I was going to say the uh, the surest way to destroy your podcast is to have an appellate lawyer on it, because uh, that seems like a death sentence. But I I will do my best to make this interesting and lively for your listeners. Oh, that's my job. You just uh, you just answer the questions. Um, <laughs> but I don't think the death. I think the death sentence was asking me to host it. That was probably the death sentence. Uh, so you're an appellate lawyer. And for our non-lawyers, essentially what that means is they come to you once they've already lost. Right. We're one. I mean, sometimes we have these cases at the outset and we win them. Um, I have the luxury of often winning them and I end up defending the winning result below. But yeah, we, we um, either my colleagues at my firm um, after they finished in the trial level um, or cases that I've handled below uh, once they go up on appeal. I'm uh, I'm the person that ostensibly coordinates, runs, uh, briefs, argues and everything else on appeal, uh, ho- hopefully till final winning judgment affirmance. Yeah. And now let me ask you this. Have you been in front of the U.S. Supreme Court? I have not. I've not argued there yet. That's, uh, you know, I know you have a bucket list question in this podcast, and that's that's a bucket list professional item. If if I can get in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, I came close. I've come close a couple of times, and I've got a case right now that's sitting in the Third Circuit um, that I think is a very good candidate um, for a U.S. Supreme Court review because it's got some very interesting federalism questions um, that at least the current composition of the U.S. Supreme Court might take an interest in. I filed a, a bunch of amicus briefs in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, uh, I think I've never lo- I've never been on the losing side when I filed an amicus in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, but I've not argued there yet. That's yeah. Hopefully that's to come. Yeah. Well, and I mean the amicus brief for those that aren't lawyers, you know, it's what we call a friend of the court brief. So that's where a party wants to get involved, wants to have their two cents. And it sounds like, Carl, you only take them if they're helping out the side that you know is going to win, just to make <laughs> sure the record stays so that your record stays solid. I mean, which is smart. Uh, well, I, I, only t- I only take amicus briefs when I'm getting paid. That's that's how it works, Josh. Well, I, there I, you I, go. <laughs> Although I will say I do uh, pro bono amicus briefs. And as a matter of fact, one that I just did that I'm extremely proud of is um, the recent case in, in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on comfort dogs. Um, there was a recent decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court allowing uh, vulnerable testifying witnesses to be accompanied by comfort animals. Um, we wrote an amicus brief on behalf of the Animal Legal Defense Fund, the Lutheran Church Charities, which has a comfort dog program, and the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys. Uh, we wrote a pro bono amicus brief asking the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to allow comfort dogs to accompany testifying witnesses. Um, and we were very happy that the Supreme Court unanimously agreed. Um, and it's it's a facts and circumstances test, uh, but unanimously agreed to allow comfort dogs when warranted. So, 
back that up. The Animal Legal Defense Fund. Yeah, this is for animals that get charged with crimes. Oh, no, no, no. it's a it's an animal uh, welfare advocacy organization. So it basically advocates for protection, legal protection of animals. It's been around since the 1970s. Um, and um, and it's a very it's a robust organization. And they, they do animal advocacy for the protection and welfare of animals across the country. Obviously, they're interested in, in the comfort dog case because they want to you know, improve the standing and what you might call usefulness of animals in, in legal proceedings. Um, and of course, we all have an interest in the truth seeking function of the judiciary. And if you have a, a vulnerable witness who will relax and be more forthright, if they've got a comfort dog they can focus on rather than the oppressive, you know, scary circumstances of the courtroom, uh, then we're all in favor of that as well. Um, so, yeah, the, yeah, the ALDF, uh, we, we got connected with them. Um, a colleague of mine had a friend there uh, because once the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania granted allowance of appeal in that case and said it would hear the case. I said, this would be a really cool case for an amicus on a pro bono basis. And uh, so we made some connections and made uh, made the connection with ALDF and did the brief for them. It was a great experience. Wonderful experience. It seems like uh, that organization probably has an easy lift, right? There's like 50 crimes related to animals in Pennsylvania because uh, it's, it's pretty bad politics to make it, you know, fewer crimes. I mean, kids and animals, right? Nobody's going to come in to the legislature and say we need fewer things in the crimes code to get people in trouble for abusing kids and animals is the way I see it. Not, not to yeah, no. say right or wrong, but that's the way I see it. But that, that's, I mean, that's true. And on some level, because, you know, and frankly, when we did the amicus brief, we thought to ourselves, you know, this, this should be a winner because um, it's, you know, if we ask for a facts and circumstances test where it's, you know, it's necessary to have this comfort dog to protect this witness. Um, and it's really just allowing the trial court some discretion to, to have the comfort dog. We, we thought that should be pretty much a no brainer. Uh, and you're right. I mean, when it comes to animal welfare statutes, you know, laws about, against animal abuse, those are those are no brainers. But where, where it, it gets a little more dicey and frankly, in Pennsylvania, uh, the law wasn't that strong until only recently is on you know, things like dog chaining, um, you know, chaining your dog outside uh, without water um, in hot conditions. You know, is that animal abuse? It, it really was an animal abuse up until Libre's law was enacted. It, a year or two ago. Um, and then there's, there's things like, you know, the law typically treats animals as property. Um, you know, right. in, in many ways that I have three dogs and the law looks at those no differently than the lamp that's sitting here on my desk. It's a piece of property and nothing more, nothing less. Um, and people, you know, think differently about that. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the right analysis. I wouldn't look at my three dogs as, as a table lamp, um, or a piece of furniture. I would look at them as in many ways, my children, uh, but the law doesn't always see it that way. And so I think ALDF is looking for ways to not only curb abuse, but also, you know, enhance the legal standing and protections for animals. And are there other jurisdictions, if you know, or is there any movement by ALDF to kind of change that? In other words, almost have, you know, a custody type scenario for dogs, because that's the situation, right? You get divorced or separated. One party gets the dog, one party doesn't, or you have to work out a custody schedule, but there's not really a forum for that. I'd have to I'd have to refer you to ALDF on their position on animal custody, because I frankly don't do not know. Um, and also, I don't practice family law um, because I don't God have bless the stomach. You. For, I yeah. don't have the stomach for that. Uh, so <laughs> so I don't know the answer in Pennsylvania about what dog custody, uh, what dog custody rules are in place. And and uh, I hope I never <laughs> I hope I never have to go down that path myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're married, right? I am. My wife, Erin, How- and I, we've been together for 24 years. 
All right. So maybe at 25, she'll be like, you know what? That's enough. <laughs> um, hopefully not. Kanahara, as we would say. Some, do you days, have any... some, some, some days I'm sure she thinks that. I'm sure. Uh, do you Now, you're a dog person yourself, right? I am. Yes. We have three dogs. And it's actually, uh, my wife actually brought dogs into my life. I didn't grow up with dogs. I grew up with guinea pigs. Those were our pets uh, growing up. Uh, when I met my wife, she had an English Springer Spaniel named Abby. Um, and ever since then we've had dogs. We've now had, we've had a succession of two. We got on our own that have since passed away, Tucker and Sam. And then now we have, uh, Charlie, Lucy and Linus. Uh, we backed our way into a peanuts theme. We didn't realize we were doing it at the time, but we, we got Charlie, we named him and then we got Lucy and named Lucy. And then somebody said to us, Oh, so you guys are doing a peanuts thing. And we said, Oh, uh, we didn't think we were, yes. but I guess we are. <laughs> we so, are yeah, thinking that yeah. far ahead. And so then when we got our most recent edition, Linus, this summer, uh, we both secretly said, all right, let's each think of a name. And if we pick them up at the rescue place and if we take them home, we'll have to tell each other what our name is on the drive home. And, and she's in the drive home when we had him in the car, I, Aaron said to me, so what's your name? I said, Linus. And she said, that's the name I came up with. So that's what we, uh, we both came up with Linus. And uh, he's a rambunctious puppy. We are still in the training phase. Uh, thankfully, potty training uh that has gone pretty well good um but yeah he's we get our steps in chasing him around that's for sure and do you have any human children i do we do not uh we do not so just uh just the dog children we feel like uh there's enough dogs in this world that need uh good homes um and that's what we view our our role to be is to to raise and give good homes to our fur babies if you will yeah now do you do any of uh the fostering no, we haven't. I mean, frankly, we, I don't think we could do the fostering because we would end up keeping every one of them and we'd right. have, we'd be overrun. We'd be overrun with 30 dogs. And we'd become the crazy dog people in the neighborhood. And probably there would have to be like enforcement proceedings brought against us because we'd become a, a neighborhood nuisance and our neighbors would hate us. Yeah. Including, I, even, even the Giffords might get tired of it. And they're the yeah. nicest people I've ever met. I, uh, I have a friend that does the fostering and I say more power to you. I don't know how, I mean, and she fosters puppies right now. She's got like four puppies in her house and she just then finds them at home doesn't keep any of them That's, uh, I mean, you're a you're a, a better person than i if you can do that i have more power to those people and, and god bless them I, I could never i get once i've you know i've made that connection and invested that time i don't think you could ever let a, an animal go yeah i mean unless they were an asshole but other than that you know and those are the ones that you can't find a home for anyway so your words your words not mine josh exactly that's actually my new catchphrase uh that i've been using lately i'm using it a lot in court um <laughs> with witnesses and judges, you know, if they're going my way. So uh, you're an appellate lawyer, as we discussed, yeah. but how do you, how does one decide, I want to be an appellate lawyer? I mean, some lawyers like writing and research and all that stuff, and I, I do as well. But how do you go from, you know, everyone has to do moot court, which is practice appellate work, and everyone has to write briefs in law school. And how do you go from that to saying, like, this is what I want to do pretty much all the time? Yeah, we're we're a different breed, um, and many would say we've got a screw loose. Um, and as a matter of fact, I always I always tell um, my colleagues, and I'll tell anybody that listens that my favorite thing to do in the practice of law is appellate oral argument. That is my absolute favorite thing to do. And uh, you know, my some of my colleagues, including the chair of, my, of the litigation department at my firm, when I told him that, he he looked at me like I was an insane person um, because he said that's my. And he's a trial lawyer. He's an outstanding trial lawyer. And he said, I, that is my least favorite thing. I hate appellate oral argument because 
it's, you know, all of these people asking you questions you don't know. You have no idea what they're going to ask, why they're going to ask it, how they're going to ask it. And they may ask questions at the same time on top of each other, et cetera. And it's, it's in many ways, it's hurting cats. We have to be kind of respectful about it, but I love it. I love the, the intellectual interchange. Um, but to answer your question, because you asked, how did I get here and how did I get into appellate law? I, I kind of stumbled into it because, and in many ways it's, it's, you know, I stumbled into being a lawyer and I stumbled into appellate practice because, you know, my very first legal job was as an intern for Kevin Steele in the Montgomery County DA's office. Um, and that was my summer of deciding whether I wanted to become a lawyer or not. And of course, I had a wonderful experience and Kevin uh, was and is a great friend. And so I decided to go to law school, but I thought I was going to be a prosecutor. I mean, my only exposure was to a DA's office and I loved it. And I thought uh, I, I could be a prosecutor. I think I could do a pretty good job of that. Right. How hard could it be? <clears throat> right. Yeah. yeah. And then, then I went to... Um, when I got to law school, I took an internship after my first uh, year summer with Judge John Kelly on the Superior Court of Pennsylvania. Um, I just applied for it because I, I needed a job and I, I was only a, it was only after my first year. So I figured I'm not going to be able to get a paying gig. So I'll just take an internship. And I just I went and I, he was it was an amazing experience. It was in Philly in his chambers in the Aramark Tower. And. Judge Kelly, what he would do every summer is he would give up his office to, uh, you know, something like six or eight interns and they would and they place desks around his office and they would teach us how to write memorandum decisions of the superior court, superior court opinions. So it was literally a, a learning how to write um, effective legal opinions. Oh, let, me pause, let me pause you there. So was the judge the one teaching or the, the actual law clerks were the one teaching? It, it was both the judge and the law clerks, mostly the law mm -hmm. clerks, I will, I will confess. And because it seems like a great way to say like, oh, you know, we're doing this really cool thing in the summer. We're bringing these interns in. Oh, I don't have an office. So I'm just going to be working from the <laughs> beach or something like that. Smart. No, no, judge, smart. That was not Judge Kelly. He was not that kind of kind of person. Actually, he would end up he had like a back office, which was almost like a closet. And he would move himself into this little closet and let and let us take over his office. And he would be there every single day, reading the briefs, reading the draft opinions and giving edits, meeting with us, giving us constructive feedback. The, the law clerks did the same thing. And I absolutely fell in love with it. I said, this is fantastic. It's so wonderful that I get to have this experience to make a contribution, to learn from the judicial perspective, how they do their work. Uh, and I said, this arena, this space is where I want to be. And it was, it was reinforced that very fall because um, in the fall of my second year in law school, I took appellate practice. Appellate practice was and may still be um, a mandatory course at Penn State Dickinson, which is where I went to law school. And it was taught by Harvey Feldman, who unfortunately, um, Professor Feldman uh, recently passed away, um, sadly. Um, but he, this he is when taught it was just regular Dickinson, right? This is when it was just regular Dickinson? No, it was it was Penn State. It was Penn State. The Penn State affiliation happened, I think, in 1997. I arrived there in 1999. Um, but to your point, the the only evidence of Penn State involvement was that they changed the sign out front to say Penn State. Yeah. Uh, but. And then I think the letterhead uh, on the letters we got said Penn State. Oh, and, and I was able to get football tickets if I wanted. I could, there get, you go. I could get season tickets, which was a big deal, obviously. Um, but outside of that, there was 
zero indication that Penn State had any involvement. Uh, but so w- when um, uh, when I when I went into my second year at, at Dickinson, uh, Professor Feldman taught appellate practice and he did a great job teaching the course. It really tied into the experience I had just had that pre- previous summer. And from there, it was it was game on. I, I knew appellate work was going to be my passion. And then after law school, I went to I had the opportunity to clerk for Justice Nigro on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for a year after law school. And then ever since, so that's been uh, my passion um, has been appellate work. Um, and again, like I said before, oral appellate oral argument is, is my favorite thing to do. And if that makes me crazy, so be it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fun too. I don't think that's, I don't think that's that crazy. I think the crazier part is that you want to just write and research briefs all day. That to <laughs> me is the crazy part. But my wife says to me, yeah, because I'll sometimes tell her about a brief I'm writing and, and she'll ask me, you know, how long is this brief? And I'm like, oh, it's 35 pages. And she just is like, ugh. she's like, so what you're saying to me, Carl, is you by choice have chosen for your profession to write the book reports that we wrote in high school and, and, the, and, the, and the, the term papers that we wrote in high school that we suffered through. You've chosen to do that as a profession. And then she said to me, well, now, now I know why you're paid what you're paid, because nobody would choose that willingly. But I like it. I really do. I really enjoy it. Is she a lawyer? She's not. She's not. She, um, she is a, a custom cake maker. Um, she, she, she's in a very different uh, space from mine. Uh, so she does more artistic stuff. She's got a graphic design background. Um, unfortunately, her custom cake business suffered and had to be closed during the pandemic. Um, and now she's working on her next act. But she's in a ver- decidedly more artistic realm than the one I find myself in. I'm glad you admit that. I mean, it sounds like that'd be a point of contention because brief writing's an art, making cakes are an art. You know, they're both arts. One's younger yeah, than the yeah. other. Although yeah. not necessarily, because sometimes, you know, you see those competition cakes and they look really cool, but they taste not great. Oh, yeah. Well, she, well, she I am I am very blessed because she not only can do the really artistic cakes. She did her sister's uh, wedding cake, which was a three tier. It was about four feet high masterpiece. Um, and then her cakes taste fantastic. And anybody, a lot of uh, my friends, they, they uh, share in, in the, the extra cake that's left over. Um, and they can vouch for the fact that her cakes are absolutely delicious. The chocolate, her vanilla chocolate chip is to die for. It's fantastic. So during the pandemic, uh, during the quarantine, the lockdown, I should say, um, what was the cake ratio? How many weeks, how many cakes were being churned out? You know, a lot of people turned to baking, but if it was already what you were doing, do you kind of just say, you know what, I'm making pasta now or, or what? How did that work? Well, so she, she really turned to bread making, um, and to other baked goods because the custom cake work dried up because a lot of her work was focused on weddings, graduations, baby showers. And every, as we all know, every single one of those went virtual uh, for basically all of last year and for many people into this year as well. And so her, her business basically went straight to zero. So she then shifted into bread making, which I, I very much was the beneficiary of, mm-hmm. and then a whole assortment of other baked goods as well. Um, and she did one thing she did do, which I thought was a really nice touch was because uh, she does custom cookies as well uh, to, to make Christmas a little less painful for everybody uh, in our family. She made little cookie kits. So basically she baked the base cookies and then prepared little bags of icing. And then we dropped them off at everybody's houses and then we all compared our, our decorated cookies um, a- after we made them. So we kind of had a somewhat communal experience of 
that what you might do in person with a cake, a cookie baking experience. So she, she busied herself with that kind of thing. Fortunately, you know, being in lockdown, we, we are big exercise. I was going to ask, we, we what, walk, was your, yeah. what was your, what was your weight gain situation? Oh, yeah. fortunately, fortunately, Josh, I've been kind of flat in that department. I haven't put on a whole lot of weight. Well, God bless uh, you. I, yeah. yeah. Well, it, look, get, having dogs helps with that because you got to walk the dog. And so we've taken lots and lots of walks. Um, and then, of course, now having a puppy, uh, we're taking even more walks. So I, I am burning the calories off. But, um, you know, I do have to watch the food intake. And I do I do check the scale regularly because you got to watch out if that uh, it can get out of control on you really quickly if you don't mind it. Yeah. I mean, and if you're like me, a former fat kid, it just pops in like that. I probably gained about 25 pounds during the second I'm half. I'm right there with you. I'm and, right there uh, with you. Former chubby kid as well. Yep. When did you um, stop being a chubby kid? Well, so it, I kind of ebbed and flowed. Uh, you know, I did the typical thing. Uh, you know, I, I, I got skinny, I guess, in high school. And then I went to college. And then I went to the University of Delaware. And there was a dining hall there with unlimited food. Uh, and, uh, so I, you know, I eat for, I can't believe I'm saying this, but, you know, I'd have like a slice of pizza, some French fries and some pasta and some soft ice cream, like every night, mm -hmm. um, which was the, you know, I can't believe I did that. Uh, but yeah, I put on the freshman 15, the, I was very much of the stereotype. Uh, and then in college, I met my wife and we both tried to, we, we both tried to get healthy at the same time because, uh, she was very much diet conscious and she made some pointed observations about how my eating <laughs> habits, which were not good. Um, they were very loving and gentle, but they were pointed. They were matter of fact comments about my eating habits. Um, and so I started changing my ways. Uh, occasionally, you know, I fall off the wagon. I, I'm a Myers and we, we like our desserts after dinner. Um, I have a mechanical need to have dessert uh, every time. As soon as I finish dinner, I start looking for the sugar. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I do my best to to mind the eating habits. And are, do you have desserts that are your go tos now, or what? Uh, Josh, it's easier to to say what are not my go to desserts. I like I, your style. I'll eat, uh, I'll eat I'll eat any any and all. I'm I'm a uh, I'm a legendary peanut butter freak. Um, I uh, peanut butter chocolate ice cream. Uh, Mary Mead Farm. Uh, is you know which is uh right around the corner from me i think it's in culpsville technically but it's i think on a lansdale address but mary Mead yep. farm has outstanding ice cream um and, and it's really it's unfortunate that it's you know five to six minutes from my house it's way too close i wish the drive was further because it's too easy of a temptation um but i you know i'm a peanut butter guy i eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches almost every day to this day i have the diet of a fifth grader in many ways i, I was gonna say you sound exactly like my toddler <laughs> Josh, I, you know, the Uncrustables, which are those frozen peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that they sell in bulk at the giant. Yeah. I, I eat those in oh. the office. Yeah. Yeah. In the office, I'll, I'll eat Uncrustables. And I've had colleagues, you know, while I'm sitting there working, multitasking, eating an Uncrustable sandwich while I'm writing a brief, I've had colleagues stick their head into my office and then see this Uncrustables wrapper and say, are you eating Uncrustables? I'm like, yes. Very sheepishly. Yes. Oh, my, my, my son eats those. That's yeah. invariably the response I get every time. Yeah. They're not a sponsor, um, but that's a good recommendation. Uh, hey, so look, I'm happy to plug on Frustables. If they want to send me some stuff, I'm happy to, if they can get in touch with you, I'm happy to share my home address. If I can get some bulk on Frustables. <laughs> okay. Wait, wait, wait. If they're sending us some stuff like a check, you know, if they want to be yeah. a sponsor, 
You got to uh, monetize this, Josh. Come on. Exactly. That's that's the next step. We'll see. We'll have a Patreon up for our next uh, season, maybe. So you're also uh, in the vein of being a legal nerd, which I can say out of love and kindness because I am as well. 100%. Also a big history buff. Those two tend to go hand in hand, right? 100%. What's your era of history of choice if you have one? So I am, I'm kind of at the moment, I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between the, uh, what you might call the colonial revolutionary period, and then the Civil War period. Um, so I just finished Team Arrivals, which is the book about the Lincoln cabinet, which is fantastic. It's Doris Kearns Goodwin's book. Um, I highly recommend it to anybody who will uh, anybody who will, will contemplate reading it. It's fantastic. Uh, before that, I, I finally got to Hamilton. I saw the musical, of course, as many have, have, but I actually read the book, all, you know, 800 pages of it. And another fantastic uh, book. Um, I've read two by Winston Churchill. So I've done the British history thing as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm in the middle of uh, Chernow's book on, on uh, George Washington. I've started that one as well. Which I think um, is the better one. Yeah, what's so far? It's been quite good. Oh, and I just finished. Um, actually, I missed one. Uh, did um, Walter Isaacson's book on Ben Franklin, uh, which was also quite good. Um, so yeah, I and, and I have Master of the Senate, which is the Lyndon Johnson book. Uh, that's next on my list after Washington. But I, I've I've sort of come to realize, and I, I owe my my wife this because I, um, you know, for the longest time I, I was resistant to reading any books of any kind. Um, especially fiction. I don't read fiction and I back I, I up, a... <laughs> back up, back up. When you say for the longest time, I was resistant to reading any books. Now you went to college, you went to law school. I did. And now you practice pellet law. So when that's a shit ton of reading. So when, yep. when you say you used to be, when did that period end? Did it end when you were 19, 35? Nope. Tell me what's nope. going on there. No, so I, you know, and it's it's funny to say that because I've I've chosen a profession and a path that is very reading intensive. Yes, uh, and I've for, for 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 the longest time, I my wife would always say to me, you know, you should read a book. You know, read pick up a book just for leisure reading. And I would always be resistant to it and say, I read for a living. I read and write for a living. The last thing I want to do is read more because then it just feels like I'm doing more of my job, and especially fiction because, and this is you're gonna chuckle at this, I'm sure is. I have a problem with fiction because it didn't happen. I'm not interested in fiction because it didn't happen. I don't care about fiction because it's not real events. So every time I pick up a fiction book, I read it and I'm like, you know, I, I don't, this doesn't interest me because this didn't really happen. And a lot of times, if it's not well-written, I find myself correcting it as I go. This goes to the writing that I do is I can't, I almost want to get my red pen out and say, this sentence is poorly written. It could have been written better this way. I'll stop and read a sentence three times and say to myself, this sentence structure stinks. The editor missed this. They should have done a better job with it. Um, and so, you know, for the longest time, I was resistant to it. And it it only changed actually during the pandemic. All these books I've just described you, Josh, I've read all of them during the pandemic. Uh, when the pandemic uh, kicked off, my wife got me Churchill's, um, I think it was his My Early Life book which was Winston Churchill's, you know, description of basically from birth till I think he uh, went into British Parliament around that time for the first time. And I read that and I said, okay, this is fascinating because this is a, you know, there's the pop culture version and the, the familiar version of history right. and of people's lives, but it's, it's different when you actually get immersed in the, in the true history 
you have a historian who does the research actually telling you about what what really happened and gives a fair and balanced account of the person's life that for all of its you know all of its its uh, triumphs and all of its foibles uh, and I find that you know those character studies very fascinating and I, I've I've said I, I feel like if I you know if I have a second act, you know, if the, the if the law thing ultimately doesn't work out, I think my next act will be as a historian because I I find history very fascinating um, and very intriguing. I don't know why, uh, but I do. Um, and it, actually, I mean, I probably should have realized this back when I was in law school because in law school I would fat I was fascinated by Supreme Court justices and their histories and how they got to the court and then how they acted when they were, when they were on the court. And as a matter of fact, at one point, uh, you know, I was that guy in law school, Josh. It sounds uh, like, I had a, yeah, I had a chart. Yeah, I was that guy. I'm getting the flavor uh, I, of that. Yeah, I had a chart uh, that I think I made on in Microsoft Excel. And it was a timeline of the U.S. Supreme Court justices, you know, when they were on the court over time so that I could reference when I was reading a Supreme Court opinion. I could look at my chart and figure out who was on the court at the time the opinion was decided. And my wife, she was then my uh, girlfriend at the time. I had this on my wall in my apartment. How big? Law school. Like it, must, it took up, uh, Josh, it must have taken up five pages. And I taped them together and then taped it on the wall. And my- uh, Were you living together? Girl, what's that? Were you living together? Uh, not at the time. She okay. Was my girlfriend. Makes we sense. Moved in, yeah. She moved in third year. Yeah, this would not have flown. No. Third year law school. We moved in third year law school. But I remember when she first laid eyes on it, she said, oh, what's that? And I said, uh, that's my chart of Supreme Court justices. And she didn't say anything at the time because she later told me she thought that that was a, a normal thing for law students, that all law students did that. And then she met my, my friend, Jeff, who was my downstairs neighbor and law school classmate, to this day, one of my closest friends. And she mentioned it to him and he made this face at, as if, you know. Um, You're a serial you know, killer? Smelled, yeah, he smelled a yeah. rotten egg or something like that. Yeah. He made a face like what? He, Carl has what on his wall? And then it became this thing like, wait a minute, Carl, this is not a thing that you're supposed to do. And so she, ever since then, it, it's, it's followed me everywhere that I'm, I'm the guy from law school that had the Supreme Court. So I was, I was very much the bookworm type in law school and, and doing more than was necessary type in law school. So, well, that's okay. Yeah. My uh, version of that in law school was uh, first year. I don't remember the context. Some professor says, uh, you know, oh, we're talking about venue and they say, oh, like, for instance, does anyone know how many counties are in Pennsylvania? And without missing a beat, I said, oh, yeah, 67, which is not a thing that normal people in law school know. Uh, but I used to work in politics and da da da. And so that was uh, that was then a thing for the rest of law school that I knew how many counties there were in Pennsylvania. So <laughs> you said you like taking out your red pen, editing um, the books you're reading. The library doesn't appreciate that. So my partners on the library board, he did want me to pass along that they would ask you to stop doing that, uh, uh, which which brings us to our lightning round and the most important question of the podcast, which is the Oxford comma. Uh, what's your take? My, my take is you will have to pry the Oxford comma from my cold, dead hands. I am a very much uh, aficionado of the Oxford comma because dropping the Oxford comma creates ambiguity. Now, I've had many lengthy arguments and debates with my colleagues about that, but I think the writing is clearer with the Oxford comma. So I am a ride or die Oxford comma aficionado. Excellent. We'll have to get those shirts uh, or jackets, maybe, <laughs> if we're feeling fancy. Um, 
you mentioned a couple of things that you know your passions that you find very interesting. What's something that you think other people are obsessed with that you just don't get the point of? And you're not allowed to say social media. Yeah, I know. I, I that's you know that's that's the easy low hanging fruit. I'm not going to take that one. Um, you know, it's funny. I have I have I'm very I try to be open minded and I try to be understanding and look at things from all perspectives and have human empathy. But there's a couple of things that I just don't get and don't really understand. And one thing I, I'm not a something I don't understand and I don't get is adults who play video games. Um, and this probably goes along the lines with my weird opposition to fiction uh, because fiction, you know, didn't happen. Video games to me, it seems to be, it seems to be a pointless activity that should be devoted to juveniles and adult. I'll pick on adult males because I am one, but adult males should not be playing video games. Um, because you see, and, you and, see this wall behind me, right? It's all nerdy shit. I got oh, some I Superman stuff well, look, up here. I got my hey, Thor and Captain America over here. I have no problem with Marvel. I think the Marvel movies are all fantastic. And the MCU I think the, what they've done with the MCU is absolutely brilliant, taking it all the multiverse in all different directions. It's a limitless universe, um, and Disney's going to make a ton of money off of it in the coming years, and, and rightly so. So, you know, I have no problem with, you know, comic books and all that kind of stuff, but devoting hours of your life and staying up till three in the morning, drinking Red Bulls, playing video games at the, you know, at the, at the price of your, you know, physical and, and well-being to me, it doesn't seem like a good investment of time. I don't know why I have a problem with it because you know it doesn't it doesn't hurt me if somebody else plays video games. But I, I've never I've never understood that. I've never understood that. All right. Well, we'll keep going on the interview, uh, even though I'm a big. I used I, before kids, I was a big video game player. Not up to. I mean, I go to bed at ten o'clock either way. But with kids, you know, there's just no time until they're a little older and then they can play with you, and then that's real. Uh, but allegedly going to be fun. Yeah. What What is something you get wrong almost every time you do it? Oh, um, well, so sticking with the, the dweeby writing stuff, passive voice. Um, I've tried to write an active voice. I always write, and this is frankly a lawyer's crutch and something many lawyers do, and many lawyers don't know they're doing it, is they, they write in the passive voice thinking that it makes them sound more esteemed or more powerful or more um, trustworthy. But all it does is degrade the quality of your writing. Um, so I try to, and actually I use uh, Brief Catch. Uh, I use software programs that actually use AI to tell me what I'm doing wrong with my writing. And the AI tells me I use passive voice too much. So that's, my, that's one thing I always do wrong. It's always a, a persistent flaw in my writing. I'm, I'm working on it. I think I'm getting better at it, but it's still there. So I passive voice, that's my... Uh, that's my choice. I'm sure I'm the only one who's ever said that on this podcast. And probably well, I'm going to that's be what we like. Whoever will say it. Yeah. we like uh, people that mix it up. So obviously, this podcast is for non-lawyers and lawyers alike. But we'll diverge for just a moment. What other software do you use besides Briefcatch to pretend to be a better writer? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Briefcatch is the only one I know because I really like it. It works very well. Uh, and and the guy that um, started Briefcatch, his name's Ross uh, Guberman, I believe is his name. Um, and he does, he's a legal writing professor and teacher and yeah. he actually publishes legal writing guides. Um, and, and on, he's on Twitter all the time, posting examples of better writing. He'll, he'll actually take Supreme court of us Supreme court opinions and, and critique them, say what's good about some, what's not so good about others and what could be improved. Um, so he's really the one. Um, and so, you know, I, I just alluded to this. I'm, I'm a, a card carrying member of appellate Twitter, hashtag appellate Twitter 
there's a cadre of us out there across the country that um, of fellow like-minded appellate dweebs, um, and we all talk on Twitter, including Ross. And Briefcatch, that, is that a Mac-only program? Uh, it's uh, Mine is Windows-based. Oh, I think they nice. do it for both. It's both Mac and Windows. And it, it does a really nice job of flagging uh, word choice, you know, simplifying your word, your word choice, uh, getting rid of legalese, writing an active voice, shortening your sentences, um, getting rid of string citations, all, you know, all the stuff that um, many lawyers are a bad lawyer habits. I mean, I, I was a better writer probably before I went to law school and I had to unlearn a lot of my bad writing habits I picked up in law school. Uh, but it's an ongoing process. I, I always say, you know, I hate everything I wrote two years ago, three years ago, five years ago. Yep. Um, and because you should always be getting better and should always be looking to improve. Always second guess yourself. Always question yourself because you always can do better uh, in your writing and frankly, anywhere else in your practice. So uh, two more questions. First is, do you have any superstitions? I do. Um yeah, this uh, this is a, I think this is not even just a superstition. I think this is just a scientific fact, which is uh, I believe in jinxes. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, I believe uh, Aaron, my wife, calls me the ultimate jinx. And I think it's absolutely a fact. I think it's absolutely true, because every time I say something is absolutely certain to happen, the exact opposite occurs. Um, and there's there's many examples of this uh, over the years. The best example is one uh, year we went to a, a Philadelphia Phantoms game. That, well, this is back when the Phantoms were in Philadelphia. So we went to a Phantoms game. Uh, it was the third period. The Phantoms are winning five to two. I believe it was five to two. They were up by three goals. There's was about 10 minutes left in the game. And I said, there's no way the Phantoms are going to lose this game. They got this, this game in the bag. The other team proceeds to score three goals and then win the game in overtime. Uh, that's one example of Carl, the ultimate jinx. So I, yes, when it comes to superstitions, I absolutely believe in them. And I absolutely believe in jinxes and that I have the power to jinx things. Uh, and so I'm routinely shut down when I'm halfway through a sentence. There's no way that Aaron will be like, duh, 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 stop, stop, yep. stop. Do not continue that sentence. And yep. I know like, oh, you're right. I better stop talking. So yeah, I am a jinx. It's a, it's a fact of life. Well, fair enough. Uh, I, I appreciate that you appreciate a jinx. My wife thinks I'm a crazy person, not just for that reason, just in general. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, okay. Yeah, this is, this is a good one. I got this early in my legal career from uh, a lawyer named Paul Hummer, who is with the Saul Ewing firm, which is the first firm I was with. Um, and it was the legal profession is a small world. It's a small world and word gets around. And that was his way of saying, think about what kind of lawyer you want to be because reputations in the legal profession, they get around and the word will get around about what kind of lawyer you are, whether you can be trusted, whether your word is your bond um, or whether you're a different kind of lawyer um, um, and maybe it can't be trusted. Um, and so his, his advice was, yes, there's thousands of lawyers in, in Philadelphia and across the Commonwealth and across the nation, but it's a small profession um, and your reputation will get around. So make sure you establish the right kind of reputation for yourself. Well, I think you've done that, uh, especially in your sectors and you know, as an expert in your field. So I'm glad you were able to take the time and join us. Carl Myers, thank you. Where can people find you? 
What's your Twitter? Uh, I know you're, you're big on appellate Twitter. So where's the Twitter? You're the first person, maybe second or third to actually uh, yeah. use Twitter and come on this podcast. So where should people follow you? Uh, they can find me at Carl S. Myers. Uh, so it's K-A-R-L-S as in Stuart, my middle name, M-Y-E-R-S. And if you actually, if you go to the uh, web address, carlmyers.com, K-A-R-L-M-Y-E-R-S.com, it actually redirects you to my website biography for Stradley. My sister is a web designer and she reserved carlmyers.com for me many years ago and has always routed it to my website biography. Nice. Great idea. I'm going to, I already own joshcampson.com. So maybe I'll reroute that instead of my current, you know, journaling that I like to do on there. There you uh, go. There you go. Well, hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association. No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Interrogatories, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review. For more information, visit us at www.montgomerybar.org.